two months we've been focusing on the great faith chapter of the Bible, the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Our author defined faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction based on evidence of things not seen, and then set about giving us examples of faith's past, present, and future aspects. He spoke of Abel and Enoch and Noah. He then focused on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He took us back to Moses and the events of the Exodus. Then in verse 32, he mentions several judges, King David, and the prophets. Now, we've already looked at a couple of the judges mentioned in verse 32 through story sermons. But I want to begin with all of verse 32 and even creep into chapter 12 to bring our study of the faith chapter to a close. We're going to look at several victors in faith and some who were not, on the surface anyway, so victorious. And then focus on the one who perfects our faith and brings ultimate victory to all who are faithful. We begin with a look at some victors in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Our author realizes that to retell the lives of all the heroes of faith recorded for us in the Bible would take too long. So he proceeds to merely mention a few, assuming that his readers would be able to fill in the details of their lives. Well, we don't want to assume too much. And even though we've already looked at Gideon and Samson, we're going to briefly touch on all mentioned in our text to make sure we know at least something about them all. He begins with Gideon, the mighty man of valor, who God called into action while he was threshing wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. The man who had a hard time believing God really wanted him to do what the angel said and therefore put out the fleece twice before he would believe it. The man who, after gathering together a force of 32,000 men and then watching God reduce his force to 300, sending 22,000 home who were afraid and 9,700 home who failed a test at the water's edge, by faith led 300 men armed with trumpets and torches into victory over 135,000 Midianite troops. Next, he mentions Barak, or Barak, the man Deborah the prophetess called to lead 10,000 men into battle 
against the forces of Sisera with his 900 chariots. That was like asking the infantry to take on a tank division. But Barak agreed to do so as long as Deborah promised to accompany him and could assure him that God would give them the victory. Then we're reminded of Samson, and we all know of his exploits, how he single-handedly kept the Philistines at bay, how he killed a thousand men in one day with the jawbone of a donkey, and how he killed more in his death than he had in all his life by pulling down a pagan temple upon himself and on thousands of Philistines who had assembled to mock Samson's God. Next, he mentions the ninth judge, Jephthah. One you don't hear much about in Sunday school because he made a rash vow to God that cost him the life of his daughter. But who, in spite of that, was a mighty warrior who came out of exile as the leader of a band of outlaws to lead the men of Gilead in battle against the Ammonites. He was also the first to use a shibboleth to distinguish one group of people from another. In fact, he actually used the word shibboleth to distinguish the Ephraimites who didn't have a sh sound in their dialect from the Gileadites. They said sibboleth instead of shibboleth. But you might find that interesting. Our author then goes from the judges to the king. And mentions the greatest king Israel ever had, King David. The man after God's own heart. Who led Israel to heights of glory as a nation. And then the last hero he mentions by name was Samuel. The first in a long line of prophets. The man who anointed Saul as the first king of Israel. And who then at great personal risk anointed the boy David to be the next king. These men, and others like them, were truly heroes of faith. By faith, they conquered kingdoms and established reigns of righteousness. And by faith, they obtained the immediate promises of God, which sometimes required God's miraculous intervention. He actually shut the mouths of lions so Daniel wouldn't be harmed and protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire of the furnace. He intervened to rescue other heroes of faith from the sword and empowered them to do what they could not have done without him, enabling them to lead God's people in victory over their enemies, putting foreign armies to flight. There were even times when God raised the dead to the prophets, Given Elijah the power to raise the son of the widow of Zarephath and Elisha the power to raise a Shunammite woman's son. These were truly heroes of faith. And they all had something in common. Success. They responded in faith to what God told them to do and he gave them victory as he promised he would. But, 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 lest we get the idea that faith always results in immediate temporal victory, 
that God always steps in to protect and guarantee success, our author quickly moves to remind us of some others. Some who in faith experienced what might be seen as defeat and failure. Continuing in the 11th chapter. And others were tortured, not accepting the release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Why is it we seldom hear of those whose faith has caused them to fail at something? Larry Richards raised this question in his book on Hebrews. When he told of an organization for which he worked that once scheduled a series of speakers from the business world who could trace their great success to God, he commented that the series was well-meant, but that it seemed to him to suggest that if we only obey God and put Him first, that both financial success and social success are sure to follow. He said he found himself longing to hear from one failure who could share, I have obeyed God. And though my business has failed and my money is gone, I've experienced his strengthening touch. Life is meaningful because I am experiencing even now the transformation that God promised me as his son. Well, Hebrews includes those failures in its list of heroes. It talks of those who chose to be tortured rather than to renounce their faith and be spared. How they were willing even to face death because they were looking for a resurrection that is far better than what the widow's son experienced. He arose only to die again. They were looking for a resurrection to life eternal. They were willing to endure mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment for their faith. They were stoned and sawn in two and killed by the sword. They were destitute and forced to clothe themselves with goat skins and live in caves and holes in the ground. These were men of faith, even though the world would consider them losers. Actually, our author notes these men were far better than what the world deserved. They were heroes, men who faced terrible times and terrible deaths for the faith. Tradition tells us that Jeremiah was stoned to death in Egypt. 
And that Isaiah, Isaiah was sawn in two. But most of those described here are unknown to us by name. And some of them may have suffered during the time of Jewish persecution that existed between the Old and the New Testaments. A time when Antiochus Epiphanes tried to stamp out the Jewish faith altogether, looting the temple, offering swine on the altar, and forbidding any to follow God's ceremonial law. Their stories are recorded for us in apocryphal books. Books that are not categorized by Protestants anyway as being scriptural. Books like Maccabees, which graphically picture what individuals went through for the faith. Stories like that of Eleazar, a 90-year-old scribe who is being forced to eat swine's flesh. How he spit it out and even refused to pretend to eat it when the soldiers had compassion on him and offered to substitute the swine's flesh with clean meat. How he responded by saying this, Such pretense is not worthy of our time in life, lest many of the young should suppose that Eliezer, in his 90th year, has gone over to an alien religion, and through my pretense, For the sake of living a brief moment longer, they should be led astray because of me while I defile and disgrace my old age. For even if for the present I should avoid the punishment of men, yet whether I live or die, I shall not escape the hands of the Almighty. Therefore, by manfully giving up my life now, I will show myself worthy of my old age and leave to the young a noble example of how to die a good death, willingly and nobly for the revered and holy laws. When he had said this, he went at once to the rack. And those who a little before had acted toward him with goodwill now changed to ill will because the words he had uttered were, in their opinion, sheer madness. When he was about to die under the blows, he groaned aloud and said, It is clear to the Lord in his holy knowledge that though I might have been saved from death, I am enduring terrible sufferings in my body under this beating. But in my soul, I am glad to suffer these things because I fear him. So in this way, he died, leaving in his death an example of nobility and a memorial of courage, not only to the young, but to the great body of his nation. Another even more moving account from this period has to do with a Jewish mother and her seven sons. A story that moves me every time I read it. Let me read some portions of this account. It happened also that seven brothers and their mother were arrested and were being compelled by the king under torture with whips and cords 
to partake of unlawful swine's flesh. One of them, acting as their spokesman, said, What do you intend to ask and learn from us? For we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our fathers. The king fell into a rage and gave orders that pans and cauldrons be heated. These were heated immediately. And he commanded that the tongue of their spokesman be cut out, and that they scalp him and cut off his hands and feet, while the rest of the brothers and the mother looked on. When he was utterly helpless, the king ordered them to take him to the fire, still breathing, and to fry him in a pan. The smoke from the pan spread widely. But the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die nobly, saying, The Lord God is watching over us. As Moses declared in his song, which bore witness against the people to their faces, when he said, And he will have compassion on his servants. The rest of the brothers then willingly suffered similar fate. It's recorded that of the third brother, that when it was demanded, he quickly put out his tongue and courageously stretched forth his hands and said nobly, I got these from heaven, and because of his laws, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again. As a result, the king himself and those with him were astonished at the young man's spirit. For he regarded his sufferings as nothing. We continue the account in verses 20 through 30 of 2 Maccabees chapter 7. The mother was especially admirable and worthy of honorable memory. Though she saw her seven sons perish within a single day, She bore it with good courage because of her hope in the Lord. She encouraged each one of them in the language of their fathers. Filled with a noble spirit, she fired her woman's reasoning with a man's courage and said to them, I do not know how you came into being in my womb. It was not I who gave you life and breath, nor I who set in order the elements within each of you. Therefore, the creator of the world, who shaped the beginning of man and devised the origin of all things, will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of his laws. Antiochus felt he was being treated with contempt and He was suspicious of her reproachful tone. The younger brother being still alive, Antiochus not only appealed to him in words, but promised with oaths that he would make him rich and enviable if he would turn from the ways of his fathers and that he would take him for his friend and entrust him with public affairs. Since the young man would not listen to him at all, the king called the mother to him urged her to advise the youth to save himself. 
After much urging on his part, she undertook to persuade her son. But leaning close to him, she spoke in their native tongue as follows, deriding the cruel tyrant. My son, have pity on me. I carried you nine months in my womb and nursed you for three years and have reared you and brought you up to this point in your life and have taken care of you. I beseech you, my child, to look at the heaven and the earth and see everything that is in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that exist. Thus also mankind comes into being. Do not fear this butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death, so that in God's mercy, I may get you back again with your brothers. While she was still speaking, the young man said, What are you waiting for? I will not obey the king's command, but I obey the command of the law that was given to our fathers through Moses. That, my friend, is heroic. but a different kind of faith than that expressed by the victors. They were individuals to whom God gave particular tasks and who were guaranteed victory in their tasks if they'd just do what God told them to do. Now, it took real faith to attempt what was humanly impossible, and there's no doubt that they should be listed among the heroes of faith. But I think it's the faith that endures in the dark. Not knowing for sure what God is doing in a particular situation, nor understanding why. It's the most heroic faith of all. A faith that doesn't have to know what God is doing, but settles for just knowing what God is like. A faith that is grounded in his character and therefore trusts him no matter what. A faith that is focused on his ultimate promises and therefore does not need nor expect immediate gratification. That is the deepest kind of faith. You know, I really think that if an angel came to any one of us and said, God's got a job for you to do, and while it may appear that what he's asking you to do is impossible, he guarantees you'll succeed, that we'd do it. We'd have enough faith to attempt the impossible if we were sure God was going to make it possible. Now, like Gideon... We might be tempted to put out a fleece or two to affirm the orders are coming from God, but once we were certain he was behind it, we would do it. 
but it's a second kind of faith. This trusting endurance, it's really the hardest. A faith that gives up everything for an unverifiable future. A faith that will go to the grave before it finds fulfillment. And that's the kind of faith that characterized the second group of believers. But both the victors and the others found approval through their faith. And in a very real sense, both died with their faith unfulfilled. Let's read on. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. While the victors did see their faith rewarded, and did see God do what He said He'd do with regard to their particular assignments, they didn't receive all that had been promised. They lived before the time of Christ, and therefore did not see the fulfillment of God's greatest promise. They could see it from a distance, and trust that someday God would fulfill it, that someday He would provide the perfect sacrifice for sin that would perfect their relationship with Him. But they never experienced the fullness of God's primary promise. The relationship with God was based on types and shadows and symbols. And even at death, they were received on the basis of what God would someday do through His Son. We, on the other hand, can know the fulfillment of that promise today. We don't have to trust that God will someday pay the price for our salvation. We know He's already done so on a cross outside Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. They looked forward in faith, and we look back in faith. And together we find our faith perfected, brought to completion. Their faith wasn't fulfilled until Christ came and made possible what we now experience in Him. So their faith was perfected, found fulfillment in us. 
On the other hand, since they were able to be faithful even before the promise was fulfilled, before Christ came, surely we can be strengthened by their witness to lay aside those things that distract us and keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. As the author of faith, he's the one upon whom our faith is grounded. And as the perfecter of faith, he's the one who came 2,000 years ago to prove God's faithfulness and to fulfill his promise to the saints of old. And he's the one who will come again to usher us before the throne of God declaring us to be fellow heirs of God's eternal riches. So faith ultimately is perfected only in Jesus. It was perfected for those who died before the cross when He came, and it will be perfected for those of us who Mary may very well die before He comes again when He returns. But for either group, those before Christ or those after. The only way to remain faithful to God was and is to keep our eyes on the one who was promised. To fix our eyes on Jesus. Only then will we be able to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Like I said, we live in good times. But we still have a race set before us. And we're told to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus when we don't understand what's going on around us. When heartache is overwhelming. When life doesn't seem fair. Compared with what some have experienced in the past and what some are experiencing today, ours is nothing, but when it's happening to us, it's everything. And it's just as hard for us to keep our eyes on Jesus as it was then. Let us be encouraged by the heroes of faith. Those who were victors and those who lost the battle on earth but won the victory. If you fixed your eyes on Jesus, I pray you'll keep him there. If you haven't done so, I implore you to turn your eyes.